first reading today is from Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The second reading is from Amos chapter 6, firstly verse 1, and then verses 4 to 7. Alas for those who are at ease in Zion, and for those who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Samaria. Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory, and lounge on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the stool, who sing idle songs to the sounds of the harp, and like David improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first to go into exile, and the revelry of the loungers shall pass away. This week, a British man who lost four relatives in the Kenya shopping mall massacre said, according to the front page of The Standard, that he hoped the attackers would burn in hell. And in saying this, he articulated the feelings of many who share with him in his outrage and his grief at the violent wrong that has been done once again to so many innocent people. Whether in a shopping mall in Nairobi, or a refugee camp on the Syrian border, whether in the marketplaces of Iraq or Pakistan, or at the funeral of a little girl in mid-Wales, there are those moments in life which are just so heart-rending, and where it seems justice is so evidently to be absent or to have been bypassed, that an appeal to some kind of cosmic or divine retribution can seem an entirely natural and appropriate response. And so we come to our reading for this morning, our Gospel reading, the troubling and difficult parable of the rich man and Lazarus. 
It raises for us the extent to which actions committed in this life have eternal consequences. In many ways, it is a deceptively simple little story, and it seems to owe its origins to the Egyptian story of Setme. Uh, Setme, according to the Egyptian story, observes the elaborate funeral procession of a rich man, and then he observes the absence of any funeral procession for a poor man who is just being carried to the graveyard. And Setme thinks and says out loud that the rich are much better off. His son, however, is with him and he expresses a desire that his father Setme, when he dies, should experience rather the funeral of the poor man. Setme is initially devastated that his son seems to be wishing him ill. But then his son takes him on a tour of the realm of the dead. And Setme sees an, ele an elegantly dressed man seated close by the god Osiris. And it turns out that this is the poor man dressed in the rich man's clothes. And he is being honoured because his good deeds in life had been more numerous than his sins. And he hadn't been compensated during his earthly life because he had been a poor man and so he received his compensation in the life to come. The rich man, however, it turns out, had more sins than good deeds, and is seen being punished by having a hinge pin from the gate to the realm of the dead impaled into his right eye. The lesson from the Egyptian story seems to be that whoever is good on the earth will find that the underworld is good to them, whilst whoever is evil on the earth will find that eternity goes badly for them. So that's the Egyptian background. Um, this conviction that wrongs will be righted and imbalances redressed in the afterlife was also common in Greek and Roman mythology, with the idea of some kind of judgment at the point of death resulting in punishment or reward in eternity being found in numerous uh, Greco-Roman writers, including both Pluto and uh, Plato, sorry, and Plutarch. Get them muddled up and you get Pluto. Interestingly, the Jewish view was less clear-cut. There are a variety of traditions within the Hebrew scriptures as to how the Jews thought cosmic justice might work. I think we need to be very alert that our kind of contemporary understanding of what we would call hell, with all that that means to us, owes far more to the Egyptian Greco-Roman style of mythology and also to many of the developments in theology and imagery in the Middle Ages than it ever does to either the Jewish tradition or to the teachings of Jesus. In the Hebrew Bible, there was a tradition based on the book of Deuteronomy which asserted that those who are good, who live good lives, will have good lives whilst those who are bad or do bad things will have bad things happen to them in this life. 
Um, this is a, a great picture by William Blake of the, the Witch of Endor, uh, which is a story from within this Deuteronomic tradition. And Saul uh, decides to try and go to the Witch of Endor to consult um, the spirit of the now dead Samuel. And uh, it doesn't work out at all well for Saul because by consulting with the dead, he is doing a bad thing. And so the next day, he and all his armies are defeated and he dies. So that, that's a very clear view of the Deuteronomic understanding that we get within the Hebrew Bible. You do something bad, you get your punishment fairly swiftly in this life. You do something good and you get your good things in this life. The logic of this then is that if someone is having a bad life, they must have done something to deserve it. Whilst, of course, those who have many good things in this life are free to enjoy their blessings that have come to them from God. Um, do you remember the, um, the hymn? Uh, I'm, going off, I'm going off script and forgetting what I was going to say. Uh, the rich man at his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and fashioned their estate. We don't sing that verse when we sing that hymn anymore. But the idea is very uh, deuteronomic. You know, God has placed you where you're going to be. If you're rich, you're there because God has blessed you. If you're poor, you're there because that is where God has put you and you probably deserve it, is, is that kind of view. It's very much a view that perpetuates the status quo, very much a view that is espoused by those who are doing quite well in life to justify themselves. However, this rather simplistic cause and effect theology, attractive though it is to at least some, uh, certainly wasn't the only attempt to understand the relationship between human behaviour and reward or punishment. The book of Job, for example, is an exploration in narrative form of why it might be that sometimes bad things happen to good people. And so we meet Job, the eponymous hero, who it becomes very clear does not deserve the fate that befalls him. Uh, rather, it turns out that the reason Job's having such a tough life is because God and Satan have had a bet and the troubles are sent to Job in order to see if he'll curse God. Uh, so he doesn't do anything to deserve them. They're there, they're there to test him. These things are just sent to try us, is kind of the, uh, the Job philosophy of bad things happening to good people. However, it's interesting at the end of Job, he still receives his earthly reward for the faithfulness through his difficulties. He gets a new wife and a new family and new possessions given to him to replace those that had been taken from him. It's actually fairly late in the Jewish tradition, after the closure of most of the Old Testament canon, that the idea of reward and punishment occurring after death starts to become part of the thinking. And even by the time of Jesus, it is a far from universal belief that God judges and then rewards or punishes people at some point after their death. For example, the Jewish group known as the Sadducees were famously well known for not having any kind of belief in the afterlife at all. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, had a fairly well-developed understanding of the afterlife comprised as either reward or punishment. And there are three key words which it's worth knowing something about if we're going to try and get to grips with the background to the story for this morning of the rich man and Lazarus. And these three words are Sheol and Hades and Gehenna. So first, Sheol. Uh, this is an Old Testament, a Hebrew word, which is used in the Old Testament 65 times to describe the place of the dead. 
Mostly, it doesn't seem to mean anything more than the grave. Where do the dead go? They go into graves. They go down into the ground where they are buried, and then they are silent, and they are heard from no more. That is the Hebrew understanding of Sheol. Sometimes it just seems to simply mean death. Somebody has passed into Sheol means somebody has died. As much as we can tell from the Old Testament, Sheol seems to be down and dark and <coughs> silent. It is the unknown void into which people pass and from which they never return. Now, when the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as we now call it, was translated into Greek a couple of hundred years before the time of Jesus, the Greeks didn't have a word meaning shame. They didn't have a concept of people just dying and going into the grave and being no more. So the Greek word that was used to translate Sheol was the word Hades. So if you read a Greek, an ancient Greek version of the Old Testament, at each point where the Hebrews would have said Sheol, the Greek version substitutes the word Hades. And what this did was it brought with it into the Greek-speaking Jewish tradition all of the Greek connotations that the word Hades already had. And in the tradition of Greek mythology, Hades was the name used primarily to refer to the god of the underworld. There he is in a statue with his pet dog, Cerberus. If I ever get a dog, I'm going to call it Cerberus, so it's probably a good job I won't. Um, Hades was uh, one of the pantheon of Greek gods. Uh, he had two brothers whose names we also know, Zeus and... Anybody know who the other brother was? Students of classics, it was Poseidon. So, Zeus, Poseidon and Hades, the three brothers, defeated the Titans and ruled the entire cosmos. And Zeus got to rule the air, Poseidon got to rule the sea, hence the Poseidon adventure, and Hades got to rule the underworld. So the air, the sea and the underworld, and that was it. And in time, Hades also came to secondarily refer to the place of the underworld, not just the god that ruled it. And within Greek mythology, it was perfectly possible for special people to make visits into Hades. Um, Heracles, for example, learned the secret entrance to and from Hades and could go down into the underworld and see what was going on there. And so it was that the Hebrew concept of Sheol, the place of silence and darkness, the place of the grave, started to acquire the characteristics of the Greek underworld, Hades, where people could have exciting adventures and where uh, amazing things or terrible things could happen to them. And this fusion of Sheol with Hades led to the development of an idea within what we call Second Temple Judaism. This is the period of Judaism um, that uh, it goes from the time of the exile up to shortly after the time of Jesus, uh, led to the idea of the afterlife as a place of reward or punishment. The Jewish Sheol started to look more like the Greek Hades. Uh, so Hades becomes somewhere uh, where both the righteous and the unrighteous could go. 
Did you know Jesus, uh, apparently according to a tradition in the book of Acts, goes down to Hades in Acts chapter 2. Jesus is spoken of as going to Hades at his death and returning from there at his resurrection, very much in the style of a, a kind of Greek hero. Well, sometime later in the Jewish tradition, uh, Hades was also thought of not so much as a place of punishment, but more of a kind of holding cell. So there are some Jewish traditions from this period which speaks of people going to Hades not as a judgment, but as a kind of place where they are held until some future judgment day. It's one of those, you know, do you go to judgment at the point of death or does everybody get judged at the end of time? And in some of the Jewish traditions, Hades was this kind of holding cell where people would be held until they were judged at the end of time. Um, and sometimes, as in Jesus' parable for us this morning, Hades is a place where punishment is already taking place. The New Testament only uses the word Hades ten times. Four of them in the Gospels, in the passage we had this morning and a couple of others, a couple of times in the book of Acts, and then four times in the book of Revelation, where Hades is always teamed up with death. But that's the sermon on Revelation for another day. And the third word we need to know about is, uh, in terms of a place of judgment, is the word Gehenna. Now I'm showing you a picture of a, a valley here. Um, Liz and I have, have been here and walked along that valley. That's not our photograph, but uh, we have been there. And in addition to Sheol and Hades, the word Gehenna is featuring, uh, particularly in the New Testament, as a word to denote some kind of judgment. Gehenna actually comes from Gehinnom, which is the valley outside Jerusalem, the Hinnom Valley. Uh, it had been a site of child sacrifice in 2 Kings 23, and it became a place for burning garbage. So it, you can see you've got the modern city, which is roughly on the site of the old city there, behind Jerusalem, and you would take your rubbish outside the city walls, and it would be dumped into this valley, and as it rots, it gives off methane, and it begins to burn, much as you know rubbish tips do in cities the world over. So it was not a fun place to walk 2,000 years ago. It's all right now, but it, it wasn't then. So it was a place of child sacrifice and a pit for burning garbage. Now, when we meet the word Gehenna in the New Testament, and the New Testament is translated into English, English translators typically at this point use the word hell to translate Gehenna. And just as when the Old Testament Sheol was translated into Greek and you got Hades, and that brought with it a whole load of stuff that was then read back onto the Hebrew concept of Sheol. So the same thing happens today. When you take the uh, Greek word Gehenna, or it's coming from Hebrew, but it's rendered into the Greek New Testament, and you translate it into English and you call it hell, immediately what you're doing is you're taking all of the developments of the Middle Ages in terms of ideas around hell and reading them straight back there into the New Testament, where, of course, they weren't to be found. Typically, it refers to a place where bad things are burned away. So whenever you meet the word hell in the New Testament, it's referring to Gehenna, and it means the place where bad things are destroyed. So, for example, Jesus says it is better to cut off your sinful hand and throw it away than it is for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. You can see his point. So, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna. 
And that's it, as far as hell is concerned, certainly biblically. We have the dark, silent void of the grave in Sheol. We have the Greek mythical underworld of Hades, and we have the fiery city rubbish tip of Gehenna. There are no pitchforks, there is no Hieronymus Bosch, there is no Dante's Inferno, there is no Limbo, there is no Purgatory. In short, hell, as we often think of it, is not to be found anywhere within the Christian scriptural tradition. These are some photos that Liz and I took when we were in Florence last week. It is within this context, then, that we need to encounter Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. And we need to recognise that Jesus is not offering a description of a future post-mortem existence where the damned and the saved can see each other across the divide. He isn't setting forth a comprehensive account of what happens to people when they die. Rather, Jesus is telling a story to make a very important point. And the key to understanding that point is to, it lies in just who it is that he's telling the story to. The clue lies just a few verses earlier in the chapter, in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this and they ridiculed him. This is following on from last week, for those of you who were here last week. Jesus' story is aimed at the Pharisees, the one Jewish group that had an especially well-developed concept of who was going to spend eternity suffering apart from God and who was going to spend eternity safe within the embrace of Father Abraham. The parable that Jesus gives isn't Jesus systematically setting out his own cosmological understanding of the relationship between the here and the hereafter. Rather, he is engaging, as he does in so many other places, with those who think they have a monopoly on the right answers to the questions of life and death. He is engaging with the Pharisees. And Jesus tells this story of the rich man and Lazarus to show the Pharisees that all their carefully wrought certainties about who goes to heaven and who doesn't and what happens to them might not be quite so certain after all. The Pharisees were absolutely convinced that by their meticulous religious observances, by their careful ethical practices, that they had earned themselves the right to call the shots on who was eternally in and who was eternally out. And it is precisely this certainty that Jesus is seeking to overthrow in this parable. The Pharisees were rich. They were rich materially, they were rich spiritually. They believed they were rich because they were blessed, and they believed that they were blessed, and therefore they would be able to spend an eternity with God. They also believed that those who were not like them, those who were poor in body and spirit, were that way for a reason, and that their poor state would also continue into eternity. In other words, the Pharisees would think that the rich man would go to the bosom of Abraham because they saw themselves in the rich man, and that poor Lazarus would go down to the underworld and his punishment in this life would continue in the life to come. So imagine the effect of Jesus' story. When the rich and apparently blessed man finds himself in Hades, with the poor man Lazarus safe with Father Abraham, Jesus is taking the clinical and judgmental logic of the Pharisees and turning it against them. 
the warning could not be more stark. Those who judge others are at most risk themselves of being judged. Those who do not exercise forgiveness and compassion towards others may not experience forgiveness and compassion themselves. <coughs> there are some of us Christians who are very quick to point the finger at those whom we would be quick to condemn. Are there not? There is a warning here that I would suggest we ignore at our peril. It's interesting, isn't it? The rich man doesn't do anything overtly evil to the beggar. The rich man is not a wicked man. He is not a cruel man. In many ways, he was probably a very good man. But, and it is a very big but, he simply fails to see Lazarus. He is blind to the suffering of the poor, and he cannot see beyond his own comfort and his own security. And his failure to recognise the humanity of Lazarus is, it seems, a failure that carries eternal consequences. You see, whilst we may not want to extrapolate from this parable to a medieval view of punishment in the afterlife, neither does it offer us the opportunity of thinking that our lives and our actions carry no eternal value. There is no mandate here to eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. In fact, quite the opposite. It seems that the message of Jesus is very clear. How we live today, in a very real sense, determines how we shall be eternally. If we live life for the rewards of the here and now, without heeding the call of God to have regard for the lives of others, then the contribution of our lives to God's eternity might turn out to be less than we would like to think it is going to be. We need to be less concerned, perhaps, with hell in the hereafter, and more concerned with the evils of hell that we perpetuate for others in the here and now. Albert Schweitzer, the theology professor and world-class organist, who I don't think ever played here, but uh, he gave up his life of wealth and status and became a missionary doctor in Africa. And when asked why, he pointed to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In his mind, the parable seemed spoken directly to Europeans. He said, we are the rich man, whilst out there in the colonies sits wretched Lazarus. This situation has not changed and it is not restricted to Africa. Listen to how Tom Wright puts it. We've all seen him. He lies on a pile of newspapers outside a shop doorway covered with a rough blanket. Perhaps he has a dog with him for safety. People walk past him or even step over him. He occasionally rattles a few coins in a tin or a cup asking for more. As I see him, I hear voices. It's his own fault, they say. He's chosen it. There are agencies to help him. He should go and get a job. If we give him money, he'll only spend it on drink. Stay away, he might be violent. Sometimes, and in some places, the police will move him on, exporting the problem somewhere else, but he will be back. And even if he isn't, there are whole societies like that. They camp in tin shacks on the edge of large, rich cities around the world. From the door of their tiny makeshift shelters, you can see the high-rise hotels and office blocks, where, if you're lucky, one member of the family might work as a cleaner. 
They have been born into debt, and in debt they will stay, through the fault of someone rich and powerful who signed away their rights, their lives, in effect, a generation or two ago, in return for arms or a new presidential palace or a fat Swiss bank account. And even if rich and poor don't always live side by side so blatantly, the television brings us together. So we all know Lazarus. He is our neighbour. So says Tom Wright. And Lazarus is currently living in hell. And it is a hell that others have had a hand in creating. It is a hell that we have had a hand in creating. And Jesus calls those of us who are not currently living in hell to see Lazarus sitting in poverty at the bottom of the pile. And he calls us to dip our finger in the water of life and to offer it to Lazarus to cool his tongue. Poverty is not to be sanctified, and neither is wealth to be vilified. Poverty is not a gift from God. It is not a cross that people must bear, as that Iona song put it earlier. It is a problem, often resulting from sin by numerous people, and it needs relieving. Wealth may indeed be a blessing from God, and the result of hard work. But also, as the Greek dramatist Menander put it, property is a veil for many evils. Jesus' parable attacks a particular kind of wealth. It attacks the wealth that does not see poverty and suffering. It attacks the ideas that possessions are for one's own use, and that they are owned without responsibility to God and other people. This is not, as some have feared, an opiate for the poor, which will keep them satisfied with a handout. The parable does not tell us how the wealthy are to assist the poor, but it insists that the poor are brothers and sisters of the wealthy, and that the injustice of the juxtaposition of wealth and poverty cannot be tolerated within God's eternal perspective. Our lives matter eternally to God. And when the dross is cast into Gehenna and burned away, as I pray to God it shall be, and when we pass through shale to the arms of Father Abraham, there will be a question to answer. And it could well be this. Did you see Lazarus? <laughs>